I love this time of year, uh, not just because it's Christmas, we've all had good things to eat, I'm sure, and some visits, caught up with each other perhaps, but also because it's a great uh, time to look back, uh, I hope you guys do this, uh, that we intentionally reflect on where we've come from and where we're at and where we're going. So this next week, I'll take some time off and I will look back over my calendars from 2014 and see where I've been and who I've been with and what I've been doing and think about that prayerfully and look forward to 2015, look at my schedule again, where am I going, who am I going there with, what am I doing, what do I think God's priorities for me are. For me, it's one of the richest weeks of the year to take some time to be reflective and think through these things. So I'm looking forward to that. And usually for me, I hope this is true for you too, it's not just an issue about plugging people or events on a calendar that you end up talking about or focusing on or reflecting on, but you really end up saying, uh, what does God want from me? Uh, What is God's work in me going to be this year? And how does God want to use me in the lives of others in the coming year as well? We're going to be in Luke 2 again this morning, and if you've been here on the previous weeks, we've just worked our way through Luke 1 and the birth account in Luke 2. We've rejoiced with the angels at Jesus' birth a week ago, and we're going to pick up from there this morning, verses 21 through 32. But as we go through the passage, and specifically as we look at the characters involved and what their character is like, See if they don't provide for you as they do for me a great example of perhaps some of the ways God wants to be at work in my character this year. Perhaps some of the ways God wants to conform me more fully or you more fully into the image of Christ. If you have a study sheet, you've got the text in front of you. I'm reading from the ESV if you happen to be reading from a different translation. So this is Luke 2, verse 21 through 32. Again, this is directly following the announcement of the angels and the birth of Jesus. So Luke 2 21 through 32, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, this is Jesus, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, that's an important phrase here, you'll notice uh, four times in our text, one more at verse 39, Uh, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. 
The point one on your study sheet there has to do with the issue of faithfulness. And if you've been here with these studies at all, you know that faithfulness is something that Luke highlights boldly. It comes up again and again in the lives of the people that have to do with the infant narrative of Jesus. And you'll see later in Luke's Gospel at all. But Joseph and Mary come out shining in this because they're faithful to God's Word, to God's law, to the covenant they lived under as Jews in Israel. So the text is clear that related to circumcision on the eighth day, giving Jesus the name commanded them by the angel, the offering for purification at the temple, and then presenting Jesus to God as the firstborn, they were, as it were, ticking these off on the list of things they needed to do to be faithful to God's requirement for them based on the Word of God, the law of Moses. We see in spades that they're faithful just as Zechariah and Elizabeth had been as we saw in the account of the birth of John the Baptist. Verse 39, again, we didn't read this far this morning, but it sums this up for them and it says, they performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Genesis 17.10, we're not going to read all these verses by the way, but they're on your study sheet for reference. Genesis 17.10, the descendants of Abraham were commanded to circumcise all males. This was reiterated in the law of Moses in Leviticus 12.3, that on the eighth day that little boy was to be circumcised, he was to be brought under the covenant both of Moses and of Abraham himself. So verse 21 tells us here in our text, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb, And names are important, and especially in the Bible, and especially if God's the one giving it. You remember we said that Jesus means God saves, or Yahweh saves. In Jesus' case, that name is a truly appropriate appellation because it specifically says this is the God who saves. So he's circumcised, and he's called Jesus. Now, after verse 21 in his circumcision, Joseph and Mary head for the Temple Mount. Because the other two things you see in this first part, the purification related to Mary and the presentation of Jesus, occur at the temple. So as you're seeing this in your mind's eye, we're now in Jerusalem, we're not in Bethlehem, we're not in Nazareth up north. We are at the temple, the temple mount there in Jerusalem. So Leviticus 12, I think this is on your study sheet as well, about halfway through the text here in chapter 12, we're told that related to ritual impurity, and you guys know if you read especially the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, that you could become ritually unclean for all kinds of reasons. And that would mean that you shouldn't be touching clean things. You couldn't go to the temple or to the tabernacle. There were a number of things by which you were to restrict your contact with others. Now, that was true when a woman gave birth as well. So Mary and Joseph are here to fulfill the law related to her offerings for her ritual purification following the birth of Jesus. So Leviticus says, She shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. He shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood This is the law for her who bears a child, male or female. Verse 8 says, If she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Now, Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph 
obediently going to the temple to make the offerings for her purification are offering two pigeons or two turtle doves. Now, this tells us something about Joseph and Mary's economic status, doesn't it? See, the law said buy a lamb for the burnt offering. But lambs were more costly than pigeons or doves by quite a bit. So the fact that Mary and Joseph are bringing two doves or pigeons means that, relatively speaking, they're poor. But God had made provision for that. And he says, it's okay if you can't afford a lamb. This is the provision. You can get two doves or two pigeons. So that's what they do. Now, I don't know if this is true for you as it is sometimes for me and others I know. You know, if God wants Mike to do something and I'm looking for a way out, it's pretty easy to find one. And so if God says, Mike, do this, and I think, well, I can't quite get up to that, I can't pony up that amount, or I don't think I can say those words, or I can't be that faithful, or, or whatever, I just let myself off the hook. I just don't follow through. I don't obey. But see, God had made a provision for the poor. They could still, they could afford a couple pigeons or a couple of doves. And I think far too often, we as Christians, we don't take, as the characters in this story do, God and His Word seriously enough, and we let ourselves off the hook. And we make excuses, we rationalize why we aren't doing what we know God has otherwise called us to. We don't want to make the mistake, and if you said this, or if you heard someone else say this, when I make this much money, when I make this much more money, when I get this raise, when those debts are paid off, then I will give generously. Or when someone else treats me a little nicer, I'll be gracious and kind to them. When my circumstances change, the way I believe God, the way I obey God, that will change too. And the problem with this is that it simply doesn't work that way. And Luke will later say in Luke 16.10, through Jesus, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little also is dishonest in much. If you want to look down the corridors of time to see what you'll be like in the future, just look at your current character and status. It's the best predictor of what you'll do and what you'll be like in the future. And hopefully that's convicting. If I look at my life, I see things I'm not happy with, and you probably do too. So unless we do something, unless we intervene, unless we're conscientious about being serious with God and His things, we're probably going to do the same things in the future that we're doing right now. So if I have little in the way of time or energy or finances or anything else, that's okay. Because God makes allowance for that. In fact, I love the passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul says related to giving, they wanted to give generously. But they're saying, well, I don't have much to give. And Paul says it's acceptable according to what a person has. Don't worry about what you don't have. You and I have the ability to obey and be faithful right now with what God's given us. So don't make the mistake of saying, I'll obey, I'll give, I'll serve, I'll be gracious. Later, when my circumstances have changed, do it now. Be faithful with the little, you'll be faithful with much later. I find it interesting that God the Father put the care of the infant son Jesus not into the hands of the wealthy and the well-placed, but under the care of the poor, but the faithful. They were poor. It didn't stop them from being faithful. Joseph and Mary are a great picture 
of this quiet faithfulness that I hope reminds you and me coming into 2015, these are things to aspire to, faithfulness in the small things. They are at the Temple Mount for this offering. So verses 22 and 23 related to the presentation the text says they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And I think on your study sheet you've got Exodus and Numbers, a couple of passages there. God had said in Exodus 13, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, man and beast, is mine. So this is before the exodus actually occurs, but in that context, Moses is down with the Jewish nation in, is, in Egypt, and God says all the firstborn of the nation, the animals and the males specifically, belong to me. Verse 12 there in Exodus 13, Set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Uh, Numbers 18 lists the price of redemption at five shekels. I just want to cover enough of this so that we've got context and not too much that it's a side road. Um, you know, the first of anything, when you, again, think of the law or think of the Exodus. In the Exodus account, when Israel comes in from the wilderness to the land of promise, the first city they take, God says, is His. He says, it's mine. Jericho is mine. You don't take anything from that city. It's mine. Why is that? Because Jericho represents everything that follows. The first represents all. So the Jews gave God the first fruits of every harvest also. The Jews were to give God the first of everything because it was a reminder that God owns all of it. And I give Him the first because the first represents everything. So there in Exodus, God had said, Israel, your first of everything you have is mine. I claim it as my own representative of everyone and everything else. So you give me the first. Now this would be a little cumbersome depending on what that would look like. What are you going to do with all those firstborns? How are they going to specifically serve God? What will their consecration to God look like? So God says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the Levites as the firstborn. And they're the ones who will serve me at my tabernacle and at the temple. So I'm not going to take, physically conscript your firstborn sons and take them someplace else. So this is what you'll do. You'll bring them to the tabernacle or the temple and you will redeem their price with those five shekels of silver. You will buy them back. They're mine. You're buying them back. You know they belong to me. And that price is the price of their redemption. So that's what God said to do. Present your firstborn. And if they're not among the tribe of Levi, they're going to be in whatever tribal area they come from. They'll live life normally, but you know you've redeemed them. They're mine. They represent that everything and everyone is mine. The setting aside, if you read, and I'm not going to read the text here this morning for time's sake, but in Exodus 13, verses 14 through 16, you'll see that God meant for the consecration of the firstborn to do the same thing that the annual celebration of the Passover did. And He meant for this to happen, that when someone's family saw that little fella being presented before God at the temple, someone was going to ask, Father, what is going on? Why are we doing that? Just like at the Passover. Why is this night different than any other night? 
And then the father would tell the children, this is what we're remembering. That same thing, Exodus says, is supposed to occur at the dedication of the firstborn. And they were supposed to look back, and not just to Exodus 13, but you remember the Passover itself was that night in which the firstborn of Israel and the firstborn of Egypt were on the line. And the firstborns, again, represent everyone else, everything else. And when they talked about when God consecrated the firstborn back in Egypt, every household that had obeyed God, taken a lamb, slaughtered it, taken its blood, put it around their door, every household that did that, the eldest born, the firstborn was safe. But every household in Egypt that didn't have the blood of the lamb, the firstborn would be taken in death. So God said in the Passover, you all belong to me. You're going to be represented by the firstborn. And if you come under the blood of the lamb, you'll belong to me in life. And if you refuse the blood of the lamb, you will belong to me in death. But the blood of the Lamb was the determiner of what that firstborn status and what the condition of the nation would be. So, so picture this. Jesus is being consecrated at the temple. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And He is specifically being consecrated to God, the one who's represented by all those offerings, who several decades or several years and a few decades later is going to die on a hill just outside Jerusalem as the Lamb of God. And just like at the Passover, God makes this quite clear that every human being's eternal destination, their standing, their eternal joy and happiness, or the suffering, if you will, of eternal death, is contingent on what their relationship is to Jesus, no different than the firstborn in Egypt the night of the Passover. So whether you're looking at John 3.36 or 1 John 5.12, the Scriptures are clear. If you have the Son, you have the life. If you don't have the Son, you do not have life. It's cut and dried. And here's Jesus, the Lamb of God, being consecrated, being presented to God at the temple. And this ceremony itself is supposed to recall for the Jews God delivering them through a Lamb and the firstborn being saved. Let me point out Hebrews 10, verse 5 and, and 10. Chapter 10, verses 5 and 10. This is speaking about Jesus. And think of it here in the context of both His presentation at the, te the temple and then later at His crucifixion. But speaking of Christ, Hebrews 10, verse 5 says, When Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared Me. Here's Jesus the incarnate God the Son in His body being presented to God at the temple. And in that same chapter in verse 10, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We've been made holy, we've been forgiven, we've been sanctified through Christ. He's presented here, and later He'll die for our sins. The Lamb of God is being consecrated here to God the Father, and then later he's going to die on a hill outside Jerusalem. The one who was given a body will offer that body in sacrifice. So Joseph and Mary, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth, faithful, they're doing everything that God has told them to do. And as they're up there on the Temple Mount, they meet an old man. An old man inserts himself 
into their story. Has someone ever come up to you sort of out of the blue and they've introduced themselves or they've said, can I ask you a question or whatever? And you're like, who are you and what's going on? Well, Simeon does that here. So the verses tell us about Simeon. He's righteous. He's devout. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That means he's waiting for the Messiah. And that the Holy Spirit was on him. Verse 26 adds, It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Isn't it interesting? We said about Mary, for a brief time at least, uh, Mary was the only person on the earth that knew that the incarnation had occurred. That God the Son was present and on earth. For a short time, as far as we know, until she goes down and sees Elizabeth, no one else on earth knows the incarnation has occurred. That Jesus is in her belly. Well, isn't it interesting here? Here's this old guy hanging out in Jerusalem. And the text says quite clearly, the Holy Spirit told him, you won't die before you see the Messiah here. Now, think of this for just a second. The only guy that we know of on the planet that knows the Messiah is coming in my lifetime. This is unique, right? Because the promises for the Messiah, they go back quite a ways, right? So Luke opened referencing Malachi. Well, that's 400 years earlier. And Jesus is born in Jerusalem. Micah said that. Well, that's 700 years earlier. And Isaiah talked about the Messiah. That's 800 years earlier. Promise to David, that's 900 years earlier. Abraham's promise 2,000 years earlier. Promise to Eve 4,000 years earlier. So here's a guy on the earth that knows the promise started 4,000 years ago. It occurs before I die. As far as we know, he's the only guy on earth that knew before I see death, I get to see the Messiah face to face. So when God wanted to share a secret, again, as far as we know, he's the only one, God shared with this old guy in Jerusalem and all the text tells us about it, doesn't tell us his vocation, doesn't tell us about his family, doesn't tell us a host of things, but it says he was just, he was devout. He was waiting for God to fulfill the promises in his word about a Messiah and comfort and light to the Gentiles and glory to Israel. That's all we know about him. He's the guy that God says, you're going to see him before you die. I'm sending him. You're going to see the Messiah face to face. You know when you're in narratives, you can make a narrative say almost anything you want. So if you think I'm a little far afield on some of these, I just beg permission to be far afield, okay? But one of the things I love about this is in the birth stories here, do you notice how prominent old people figure? Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon. And we didn't read further in the story, but Anna is very old, the prophet there on the Temple Mount who goes around telling everybody the Messiah is here, here he is. They're old people. How much does our culture value old people? Not very much. The white-haired among us. The ones among us getting more white hairs as we go along. But isn't this neat that God's promise and the fulfillment of John the Baptist's presence on earth? Now Jesus comes through a very young virgin. We know that. So God's using the old and the young. But the old figure very dominantly in these stories. Don't write off the old. And if you're a younger person, 
you know, when Kathy and I were young Christians, we looked for older Christians who were willing to take us under their wing because we knew we could learn. We wanted to grow. If you want to grow as a Christian, an older mentor is a great person to have in your life. And I don't just mean old. And, and you guys know this. Uh, I can be a Christian for 40 years and be like a one-year-old Christian. Right? Just hanging out doesn't make me more mature and more Christ-like. So I'm not saying time alone. And that's not true of Zechariah and Elizabeth or Simeon or Anna. They were serious about God. They were serious about His things. And so they had walked with God for a long time. And those are the folks God's using in this story, in His story. So if you're younger, having a mentor, an older Christian who's walked with the Lord that you know is serious about God and God's things... That's a great resource to have in your life. And also being someone, not just that I'm older than most everybody else in this room, but that I can walk with the Lord, I can be faithful such that God can use me in the lives of others, that's a great aspiration. So God is using the elderly big time in this story about the incarnation. Simeon is a a great example to me that if we want to hear more often from God, and again, this was a unique circumstance, right? This story is unique. So this isn't going to be repeated in this way. So we're speaking generalities here. But if we want to hear more often from God, if we want to be used by God more often in our lives, especially in the lives of others, if we want to be ones with whom God shares His secrets, Psalm 25 says, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him, that take Him seriously, that obey Him. We want to know God's secrets, those things that He's whispering in our ear. Then we need to draw near to God as Simeon had and Zechariah and Elizabeth had and Anna had. And we'll see that same benefit in our life as well. You guys have probably heard, whether it comes out as a joke or a story, two salesmen, one very successful, one not so. The not-so says to the very successful salesman, how lucky you are. And the successful salesman says, you know, it's funny, but the harder I work, the luckier I get. That's true in spiritual things as well. The more diligent I am in God's Word and in prayer and in fellowship and in worship and in obedience and faithfulness, you know what? The more I hear from God, the more I get that He wants to tell me and show me and change me and use me in the lives of others. It's funny how that works. So if we want to be people that God can use in the lives of others as part of His story and His revelation of His Son into the lives of others, wouldn't you love to be part of that? If we draw near to God, James 4 says, God draws near to us. That's what you have an example in spades here in this story. The only thing God tells us about Simeon is he's just, he's devout, and he's setting his course of life by God's plans and promises. That's all we know. But that would be enough. That's a good example for you and I for 2015. Um, Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. You know, they're on the Temple Mount, and hopefully you guys have a picture in your mind of the Temple Mount. It's a big, big flat area. You've got to walk up some stairs through some passageways to get up there. And the first big, big area you get to is the court of the Gentiles. A Gentile could go up and could go that far. And then the next court would be the court of the women. And the women, Jewish women, could go that far. 
And so they're in one of those two courts because Mary couldn't go further than the court of the women. When Simeon sees them and barrages into their life, you know, inserts himself into his life and picks up Jesus and says, My eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. I have seen Yahweh saves. He's here. This little baby is it. I've seen him. He's here. Now, Simeon knew from the promises of the Old Testament that the Messiah would come, but he had that very particular and peculiar promise from God specifically to him that he would live to see the Messiah. So think about this for just a minute. I don't know when God gave Simeon that promise. How long prior to this day did he have that? The text doesn't say, and I don't know. But think of this for just a minute. So God tells you, let's say, some secret that the rest of the world is waiting for. You're the only one that knows. Do you think that would change the way you saw life? Everyone else is waiting for something. They have no idea when it's going to happen. And you know, I don't know the day, I don't know the week or the month, but I know I am going to see it. Would that change the way you saw life? So I'll bet every day Simeon got up and thought, I wonder if today's the day. I've got a promise. The promises of God in the Bible. I've got God's specific promise to me. I wonder if it will be today. I wonder if that's why he went to the temple. Because someday that little guy is going to be dedicated in the temple. We know he lives in Jerusalem. It says he's from Jerusalem. And he's up there led by the Spirit at that time to the temple mount. But I'll bet every day he's wondering, is this the day? Will I see my Savior, my Messiah today because I have a promise from God that it could happen? Because before I die, and we know he's old because he says, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. I'm ready. Young people don't say that typically. I'm ready, Lord. I've seen him. So now I can depart because you kept your promise. Your Savior, my Savior, is here. That would probably inform every day of his life. Now, you know, uh, our church doesn't take a, a very defined point of view on eschatology. You know, if you want to get a fight going, talk about election and prophecy in Christian circles, right? So are you elect or not? We are, but it's, what does that look like? You got it, that's what the texts say, but what does that look like? But also on eschatology. So Lion and Lamb's statement of belief simply says, we believe Jesus will physically return to the earth and rule here on the earth. We don't parse, are we pre-trib, are we mid-trib, are we post-trib? Though I'm very opinionated, and if you give me 10 minutes, I'll tell you how it's going to shake out, okay? I've got my views. You've heard them before. We, but, but... My eschatology tells me and it gives me the same hope that Simeon had because I believe by God's word, not because the Spirit has whispered to me a particular promise, but I have by God's word a hope that Jesus Christ could call me today, could call the church today, that 1 Thessalonians 4.17 could happen today or tomorrow. I believe it could happen at any time. I have the same hope that Simeon had. Every day I think, I wonder if I will see Christ today through death or through being caught up. My theology says might be today. Do you think that affects the way I live? It does, and I wish it affected the way I live more than it does, but it does. In fact, later on in John's epistle, 1 John, it says that our hearts and our lives are purified when we have this hope 
that we're going to see Jesus. He'll appear, we'll become like Him, we'll be transformed into His image. But if we don't know when it's going to occur, we're sort of on our best behavior. We're motivated. So if you know mom and dad are coming home any minute, you don't stick your hand in the cookie jar. The door might open. They might catch me. My behavior changes. But positively, my outlook changes. If I think like Simeon, I might see Christ today, that would change the way I see every day of my life. Every day of his life was informed by this hope. And we don't know what this looked like. He's there on the Temple Mount. Did the, did the Spirit whisper something into his ear? doesn't say. You know, Jesus didn't have a halo on his head. Mary and Joseph didn't wear halos like the paintings, right? Maybe a light shone from heaven. Don't know. Don't know how God indicated, but Simeon knew this is the one. And he says, now, I've seen your promise. You kept your promise. I've seen your salvation. I've seen this one, God incarnate here, my Savior, my Messiah, light to the Gentiles, glory to Israel. He's here. I've seen it. I love verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon knew that to see Jesus was to see God's salvation. This is the great need, by the way, for any of us, uh, whether you say to hear the gospel, to hear the truth of the gospel, to hear God's word or the truth, or to see Jesus, uh, whatever language we put it in, in this text it's about seeing Christ. That's the great need for anyone on the earth, it's to see in Jesus God's salvation. You know, that requires faith. If you go back, think about the story of Jesus here. Simeon sees him and he says, uh, God's Savior's here. I've seen it. He's here. This is him. But you know, a lot of other people saw Jesus and, and they didn't see what Simeon saw, did they? So as he grows up, and certainly when you read about his ministry years in the Gospels, so more people didn't believe in him that saw him physically than did. Right? He's rejected by crowds, by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, by the Sanhedrin. So rejection was the norm. To see Jesus the way Simeon did required faith. If physical sight wasn't joined with spiritual sight it didn't do them any good and Simeon saw Jesus through the eyes of faith and that's really what's needed for you and I today as well and this is true whether you're thinking of the matter of salvation and my sins forgiven or whether I'm thinking I'm a Christian and I'm growing seeing Jesus is what this comes down to seeing Jesus through the eyes of faith is what this comes down to have you guys ever heard the de definition or the description of faith? It's a leap in the dark. A leap in the dark. I hate that because it's not true. That has nothing to do with biblical faith. So if you get to Hebrews 11, the epistle to the Hebrews was written to tell people, keep going, don't give up. Persevere in the faith. And as an example, chapter 11 is in there to say all these people had faith, and they persevered in their faith in God. Now, faith is always a response to what God has said. We don't make things up. We don't jump in the dark. Don't jump in the dark. If God has said something to believe it, that's biblical faith. But then we say, well, what does that look like? I love Hebrews 11. It's concrete. So how does it tell me? What did faith look like in the lives of those people? It was action. 
in almost every instance, it was what they did. So if you go to Hebrews 11, you'll see that Abel offered a sacrifice. That means he picked up an animal and he put it on the altar. It was an action. Uh, Noah built a boat. That's what he did. That was faith. Noah built a boat. Abraham took a long walk. And then decades later, he put his son Isaac on an altar. He physically put his son on an altar. That's what he did. What did faith look like? It's what they did. Moses walked away from Egypt and he kept the Passover. You get the picture. If you want to see more of Jesus, you've got to apprehend him through the eyes of faith. And if I say, well, how do I increase my faith? I can quote Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing God's word. I'm with it and I'm good on that for sure. But how about this? Increase your faith by obeying. By obedience. You know, James is a hardcore. He says, if you tell me you have faith, but I can't see anything, I'm not really believing you. But if you tell me you have faith, show me your faith in action and I'll believe you. That's credible. So for us, if we want to increase our faith so that we can see more of Jesus, how about just obedience in the things we already know God's called us to? So for instance, uh, we have a, had a great Sunday school class. It's on apologetics. It's on the veracity of the Old Testament. It's great, great stuff. But you know, apologetics don't save people. The gospel saves if a person has heard the gospel, if you're here this morning, you've heard the gospel, the claims of Christ, I'm a sinner, yes, we know that. This is the testimony to Jesus, the incarnation, the testament of the scriptures, the testimony of the spirit throughout history in the church, the testimony of changed lives around us. We've heard the gospel, we know the claims of Jesus, we have enough to obey the gospel. And so for someone who's heard the gospel, the issue is, have I obeyed the gospel? That's the language in Acts, by the way, later, that all men everywhere are called to obey God in repenting and believing Christ in the gospel. So if you've heard the gospel and you say, ah, maybe true, maybe not, I'd say the, the point of faith for you is to believe and to accept and with your will embrace the Savior and see Jesus as your Savior. For others of us, and maybe again, we're at the end of one year, we're looking into another. For others of us, faith, growing in faith so that we see Jesus through the eyes of faith, means not doing some things maybe we've been doing this year. Or it might mean starting doing some things that we know we should be doing. Right? I'll bet for all of us here, we look at our life and we say, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I am. Well, what a great time to start obedience and faith and increasing our faith. Or, I know I should be doing such and such. God's Word is clear. What a great time to start. Because, guys, as we obey, God will increase our faith. Faith isn't the problem. Obedience is the problem. So if you want to see more of Jesus in 2015, obey God right where you're at. Uh, Simeon was led by the Spirit. I want to, be, I want to make two points here. Uh, Simeon was led by the Spirit. The text is clear. Three times it says the Holy Spirit's on him. He's led by the Spirit. He's, led by the, he's there by the Spirit. Luke is clear in, this, in the, the birth narratives and in this part of the story as well. What you have in spades is two different things. You have faithfulness to God's Word. Five times in this text, 
according to the law of the Lord, according to the law of Moses. That's God's word. When it says Simeon is just and righteous, on what, what uh, measurement is that being said? It's based on the law of Moses. He obeyed the law. He kept God's word. What you have in spades here is God's word and God's spirit. We don't want to make the mistake of thinking that the word that the spirit of God gave or the leading of the Holy Spirit who gave the word are in any way opposed to each other. Have you ever met people or are you a person who thinks that there is some disunity between studying God's word, taking God's word seriously, and being sensitive to leading the Spirit are not one and the same thing. These are one and the same thing. The Holy Spirit is not pitted against God's Word. It's inspired by Him. God's not arguing against Himself. Some Christians are soft-headed. And they say things like, I really want to be led by the Spirit. But they don't read their Bible. And I say, I've got a problem with your view of being led by the Spirit. Other people will read the Bible, but they'll do so to build themselves up, not to be faithful, and they'll be proud. And they're not going to be feel very sensitive to the Spirit because God's opposed to the proud. See, there's no distinction here. The folks that God is interacting with, they know God's Word, and they're being led by the Spirit. And we want to do both. There's no parsing here. Read your Bible. Know God's Word that the Spirit of God has bothered to give us. And be sensitive. And that sensitivity starts through being faithful to what we know God has already said. Uh, one of the things I hope, we usually pray, we pray before every service here, you know, it's that, Lord, would you bring somebody into your family today? Would somebody hear about Christ today and be saved? Because we're serious about that. And you know, I hope that in the next year that you and I, we in this room, see lots of people come to faith in Christ, that they obey the gospel, they see Jesus for the first time, and they experience that forgiveness of sins and new birth. And they begin this walk with God that ends in glory in His presence. Uh, one of the things we want to be careful about in those discussions that I hope we're having with others, conscientiously having with others, uh, we want to be careful that we're not talking against something, but that we're helping people see Jesus. You know what this looks like? So maybe you have relatives that come from a different uh, religious background than you. And so your means of helping them come to faith is to knock down all their false theology. Where would that end? I mean, there's a place for that. Don't get me wrong. There's a place for that. But that's not where you start. They need Jesus. They could misbelieve a million and one other doctrines and it's meaning it doesn't matter which wrong one they've got. If you have Christ, you have salvation and eternal life and glory and hope. If you don't, you have death. So you can die a billion ways. There doesn't matter which one. So when we're interacting with others, make sure that what we're doing for them is what Simeon experienced. I see Jesus. We want to help others see Jesus. We don't want to knock down and take the trouble to knock every false theology and, and false concept and idol down. They'll just keep popping up. What we want them to do is to help them to see Jesus. So make sure when we're talking to others and the gospel that we're, 
we're helping them see Jesus. And sometimes that's a challenge that you have enough information to believe. What's keeping you from with your will obeying and embracing Christ as Savior and Lord? But also for others of us that are already Christians, when you see areas of your life in which you have chronic sin, those are areas we need to see more of Christ. You know, I, I'm drawn to something that's second rate because I'm not satisfied by the thing God wants me to know and experience deeply. So the more I know Christ, the less tempted I am to sin. So if you find yourself in some area of life, this could be a million things again. Greed or lust or bitterness, it doesn't matter. They're all, they're all coming from the same place. Pride. I need to know Christ more fully. The more satisfied I am with God Himself, the less tempted I am to sin. Now, our sinful nature never changes. You know that, right? As long as we're in this flesh and blood body, we have a nature that's absolutely opposed to God. It's always proud. It's always lustful. It's always greedy. It's always bitter. That's all it can be, no matter how I cover that up nicely or religiously. That doesn't change. But my appetites, my bents, my habits, they can change over time if I see more of Christ and value Him because I see more of Him. So whether we're thinking about coming to Christ or growing in Christ, seeing more of Jesus is what we need. We need more of Christ. You know, the phrase, in Christ, is throughout the New Testament, primarily the epistles. That's what identifies us. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. I want to make much of Christ as Simeon and later in that same story, Anna did, because that's where the life is to be found. So, how about this for a goal for 2015? To see Jesus more fully and more often. That would work for me. Uh, in the Word... You know, I hope we talk about this. I know I'm a drum. I beat the same drum. Start each day in God's Word and with prayer. I'm with the Lord. I'm starting each day. Guys, when I do that in my mind, I'm giving God the first part of my day because the whole day is His. So I start each day with Him. I'm in His Word and I'm praying. It would be hard for me not to start a day this way. We see Jesus in the Word and in prayer through obedience, increasing the eyes of our faith through doing what we know God's already told us to do. Asking others for help as we need to. Seeing Christ more fully in worship and in the fellowship of the saints. Uh, I'll close with this. The Apostle Thomas is uh, uh, one of my favorites and it's because of a passage in John's Gospel. You know, we always give the guys their faults are out there, aren't they? And so, man, we, we take advantage of that, as if our faults aren't. You know, so Thomas is always doubting Thomas. Okay, you know, yes. But Thomas is the guy that said, I'm ready to go to Jerusalem with Jesus and die with him. I don't hear many Christians here saying that today. That was Thomas also. But you know, he had difficulty, didn't he, after the resurrection? He wasn't there the day of the resurrection when the rest of the guys had seen the resurrected Jesus. And you can imagine... They're all disappointed. None of them saw this coming. None of them knew this was what it was going to look like. The guy we think's the Messiah, because he is, dies on a cross and gets buried, and all our hopes are, are buried with him. And we're not sure about this resurrection thing. And Thomas isn't there. So a week later, you know, he's the one that said, I'm not going to believe. You know, I'm disappointed. I'm hurt. I'm not going to believe unless he's here. He's physical. I can put my hand, you know, in the wounds. But then a week later, he does see. And though he had lived with Jesus for three years, 
eaten with him, slept near him, saw the miracles. You know, I think for him, that night, the week after the resurrection, it was like seeing Jesus for the first time. I see him as he is and for who he is. And that's my hope for myself and for us this year. It's that we would see more of Jesus as he is, who he is, that the eyes of our faith are increased because we're obeying the things we already know to do. Let's pray. Lord, we know that in you, in the Son, is life. Lord Jesus, thanks, light of the world coming and paying the awful penalty due our sins. Thanks for your incarnation, your crucifixion, and your resurrection. Lord, would you help us to join Simeon in seeing in you our Savior, our glory, our light. Lord, would you help us to make much of you in our own lives through obedience? Would you help us to make much of you in the lives of those who don't yet know you so that they can see Jesus through the eyes of faith too? And Lord, for us, would you help us to see Christ more fully each and every day in your word, in prayer, in the fellowship of the saints, and in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.